Mark 4:35 through 5:20. Later that day, when evening came, Jesus said to them, "Let's cross over to the other side of the lake." They left the crowd and took him in the boat, just as he was. Other boats followed along. Gale force winds arose and waves crashed against the boat, so that the boat was swamped. But Jesus was in the rear of the boat, sleeping on a pillow. They woke him up and said, "Teacher, don't you care that we're drowning?" He got up and gave orders to the wind, and he said to the lake, "Silence, be still." The wind settled down, and there was a great calm. Jesus asked them, "Why are you frightened? Don't you have faith yet?" Overcome with awe, they said to each other, "Who then is this? Even the wind and sea obey him." Jesus and his disciples came to the other side of the lake, to the region of the Gerasenes. As soon as Jesus got out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out of the tombs. This man lived among the tombs, and no one was ever strong enough to restrain him. Even with a chain, he had been secured many times with leg irons and chains, but he broke the chains and smashed the leg irons. No one was tough enough to control him. Night and day, in the tombs and the hills, he would howl and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and knelt before him, shouting, "What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me." He said this because Jesus had already commanded him, "Unclean spirit, come out of the man." Jesus asked him, "What is your name?" He responded, "Legion is my name, because we are many." They pleaded with Jesus not to send them out of that region. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside. Send us into the pigs, they begged. Let us go into the pigs. Jesus gave them permission. The unclean spirits left the man and went into the pigs. The herd of about two thousand pigs rushed down the cliff into the lake and drowned. Those who tended the pigs ran away and told the story of the city and in the countryside. People came to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the man who used to be. Demon possessed. They saw the very man who had been filled with many demons sitting there, fully dressed and completely sane. They were filled with awe. Those who had actually seen what had happened to the demon-possessed man told the others about the pigs. Then they pleaded with Jesus to leave their region. While he was climbing into the boat, the one who had been demon-possessed pleaded with Jesus to let him come along as one of his disciples, but Jesus wouldn't allow it. Go home to your own people, Jesus said. And tell them what the Lord has done for you, and how He has shown you mercy. The man went away and began to proclaim in the ten cities all that Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. I think that I have enjoyed making my sermon titles way too much. This week comes from an episode of NBC's show Parks and Rec, and it kind of makes sense with today's reading. I mean, we have a huge storm. And we have a bunch of meat being thrown into the sea, so it works, right? Kind of. Okay, it might be a little bit of a stretch. Okay, a very big stretch. But it's what came to me when I was reading the scriptures. We find Jesus for the fourth time on a boat. This time he's trying to make his way across the lake, and after all of his teaching, he's in for a nap. As we have seen before in Mark two, one of the side effects of ministry is getting tired, and the time to rest is come upon Jesus once again. And Jesus once again shows us that sometimes the best thing for us is to just take a nap. I know this now more than ever now that I'm a parent of a fourteen-month-old.
when Jesus drifts off to dreamland, and this is one of the things that I was thinking about while writing this sermon, do you think Jesus dreamed? I have really no point to make of what Jesus would dream about, but I would just think that it's kind of weird to think of Jesus napping and not thinking about what Jesus would dream about. Anyways, so Jesus is letting the boat slowly rock him to sleep, and then a storm gathers. And not only a storm storm, but a big storm, a gale force winds level storm. You have to remember, some of these disciples had lived their whole lives on boats. They were fishermen. They had known this lake. They had fished this lake ever since they were old enough to pick up a net. They could handle a boat and weather like this. And it seemed that even the most experienced people on that boat were scared. And you know what? I don't blame them. I've often felt this way, that no matter how many storms I've weathered in my own life, how many uh, experiences I've had in my own sea adrift, I've often thought that when the big one comes, this surely is the one that will do me in. This time, I have bit off way more than I can chew. This is the storm that will finally drown me. And it's just not the physical storm that causes the panic, but there's also an emotional response to distress that the unknowingness of life, the uncontrollable nature of the things around us cause. These disciples did not have control over what was happening, and in fact, to them, it seems like things were getting more and more out of control. And this causes these disciples to embrace fear. When things are out of control, they're consumed by fear because that fear is often associated with the chaos of not feeling like we are in control. I know that sure that some of you can relate, except for some of you adrenaline junkies like my wife out there. Most people do not like the feeling of being out of control. There's a certain underlying fear that comes over and can dominate us that when we're spinning out of control, what can we do? And these storms sometimes manifest themselves in physical ways, such as the storm on the seas the disciples are going through, but these storms can also manifest them, manifest themselves in other ways as well. They can manifest themselves in personal traumatic experiences that we may go through that might manifest itself in something outside of your control that is happening to you, something like an accident on the freeway. They can manifest themselves in the actions of a government or political parties. They can manifest themselves in war and famine. These storms come up out of nowhere and seem to shake us to our core. And just, ask, and just like the disciples, we rush to Jesus and say, and think to ourselves, Jesus, are you asleep? Do you not care about what danger that I am in? And oh, how I've let these words escape my lips in the sighs of lament. I have found myself in the middle of my own storms. As my life was rocking back and forth, helpless on my emotional seas, asking myself, Lord, are you asleep? Lord, do you care? Or as a quote from the plaque that sat on President JFK's desk as a gift from Admiral Rickover, O oh God, thy sea is so great and my boat is so small. Thy sea is so big. And I feel so small in comparison to the chaos that surrounds me. And what do we do in these times? 
if I were so pious, I would say I would not panic. But just as you could tell from the scriptures today, to panic is to be human. And to run to Jesus is to be a disciple. There is a small tension here that I want to mull over with you today. Would the disciples, would the disciples and Jesus have been okay if they did not run to wake Jesus up? I.e., was there a lack of faith and not trusting that everything was going to be all right? Is the reason that the stories of the gospel reading today, is that the reason why the gospel reading is in here for us today? Or is it to show that if we do run to Jesus with our chaos and fear, that it is in Christ alone that chaos can be made peace? Now we have Christ saying to them, O ye of little faith, but what was their lack of faith in? The fact that Jesus would not save them? Or that the fact that Jesus was already watching over them. Or no matter what happened, even if they did wreck, that their trust in Jesus would see them through. The obvious read of the scripture is that Jesus is disparaging the disciples for the lack of faith in Jesus to protect them. Especially when he's physically there with them. Now I do think that this is probably the correct read of the situation that we as believers need to remind ourselves. That sometimes in the midst of the storm... Just because Jesus is napping in the back does not mean that he's not in control. Just because we can't see Jesus doing something does not mean that he's not doing anything. Just because we cannot see Jesus doing something does not mean that he is not doing anything. It's important for us to remember because sometimes I, I even know for myself, I rely too much on wanting to see Jesus do something so that I can feel the comfort that sometimes Jesus is doing something and we just can't see it and we need to have that trust. We need to trust that Jesus is always up to something in our lives and the lives around us. That even though the chaos might feel like it will take us over, the chaos is still under the control of Christ. That even the winds will obey him. But also, let us not negate to sit patiently by either. To be human is to run in our fear to Christ, because it seems that it is an only in Christ alone who can calm our chaos. I do not read Jesus scolding disciples. Instead, I read Jesus reminding the disciples, Don't you know by now that I got you? Don't you know by now that I am on your side? Don't you know by now that even amiss what this world will throw at you, though this environment you may find yourself being thrashed about in, though it may feel like the darkness might win, I am with you. Don't worry. I have you. It does not mean that the chaos will always end. But it was, what it does mean is that even in the midst of the storm, Jesus will be there with us. What it does mean that even though we do not believe that Christ is in control, that does not negate the control of Christ. Because even when our fear becomes too much, that is not too much for Christ. But just as disciples stood in awe, we too should stand in awe of what Jesus has control over. Whenever I read Jesus shouting at the waves to be still, I often hark back to Psalm 46.10 where the Lord declares, Be still and know that I am God. The nations will worship me. Regardless of how often this Pinterest quote is pulled out of its context, 
It reminds us in the midst of our turmoil and chaos, in the midst of our feeling out of control, and in the psalm case of geopolitical control, the fear of not knowing what's going to happen next, we should remember that Jesus says, be still. Take that time to remind yourself that it is only through God that chaos is calmed. It is only through Christ that these things will come to the right ending. And we need to remind ourselves to be still and know that it is God. And God takes his time. And in that time, in the midst of fear, we stand in awe of what God may do, despite our unbelief. Now, as the narrative continues, Jesus finds himself on his way to the Gerasenes and once again on a boat because in the Gospel of Mark, it is very obvious to me that Jesus loves boat ministry. He ends up outside of a tomb and the man comes running out. Now, this man is dwelling among the dead because he's near the tombs. So he has been declared ceremonially unclean. He is unfit to be around other humans because he is dwelling among the dead, and that is bad news. Not only So that means this man is not wanted by his community. But not only that, his community decided to physically restrain him, to keep him away from them. This is a man who was casted out as much as anybody could be casted out of society. He was unwanted, and he was in pain. He was being tortured by these literal demons night and day. He would cry out from among the dead. No one wanted to come save him. They actually only wanted to restrain him. And we do this, don't we? We don't. When we don't know a person or that person might scare us, we exile them. We push them out to the margins. We create gated communities. We create red lines and red line laws to keep them away from us. We create systems to restrain them, like mass incarceration, to keep them among the things that we wish to forget. We forget their names and we try to drown out their cries. When people do not fit into what we want, or sometimes even when people are unhealthy, we push them to the outsides of our communities and restrain them to keep them away from us. Sometimes when suffering is happening and it's hard to be around, it's easier for us to pretend that it doesn't exist. It is easier for us to ignore it than go to the trials of healing and restoration. And the man runs out to Jesus and the demons acknowledge who Jesus is as Christ. And ask what Jesus would do with them. There is this weird interaction here where Jesus asks for the demon's name, which for this point he's not really done. And for the most part, up to this point, all Jesus has done when he's encountered a demon is like, hey, get out, they leave. But here, we have a full on conversation. But yeah, Jesus asks for the name and they respond that the name is Legion. And here, Legion is chosen because of what that word meant at that time when Christ was walking around. Legion was a known thing. It was a standard of grouping of Roman soldiers, which was about 3,000 to 6,000 soldiers. This name would have resonated with the fear of Roman oppression. If a legion was coming into your area, that meant the system of Roman oppression was coming. The Jewish people, this was a name to be feared. Legion. 
oppression, systematic oppression was coming. This name was the name of oppression. And Jesus is about to have a conversation with it. Now, a lot of scholars will deal with this next part differently because, frankly, it's a little bit weird. The demons asked to be casted out to the pigs nearby. It seems that the demons would rather be inflicting evil on something rather than nothing. So Jesus casts them into the pigs and then the pigs run to, into the lake to their death. Now, this shows that demons, like the oppressors of Rome, will drive things to their death. Suffering and death are the desires of demons, and they will drive all things to that end. If we think about the demons that infest our systems of our world today, this is the end. Their desire is to create suffering and death. Another point to this is the pigs actually belong to somebody else. There were people tending the pigs. This was their economic means. And now the economic means is gone. And there's a tension here that we must acknowledge. That in sometimes in order for a person on the margin to experience healing, it will create an economic loss for others. I'm going to say it again because this is a tension that we as Christians must engage with, especially now in our current political and economic world we find ourselves in as Christians in America. There is a tension here that we must acknowledge that sometimes in order for a person on the margin to experience healing, it will create an economic loss for others. I know this isn't revolutionary, but it is an example that we see here in Scripture. That sometimes in order for a demonic system to perish, for the healing of those it's taking advantage of, for those it's oppressing, for the healing of the other, it will create an economic loss. And actually, what's even harder is that this loss is at the expense of a non-Jewish person and somebody outside of their community. That makes this even more messy because a Jewish man would not be raising pigs. So this is someone from their community that was not of the same faith of Jesus. And like Jesus had just taken this person's livelihood away for the sake of healing another man who they had pushed out from saving one outsider, from one outsider caused the loss of another outsider. Whether we like it or not, the economics of today and their very livelihood connects all of us. As we much we don't like to see it, there are systems in this world that can be oppressive and just downright evil. Not all systems. I'm not saying we need a revolution. But I'm saying that there are some systems. And these systems are predicated on oppression and suffering. And it seems that the only way to help those who are oppressed, well, might cause an economic loss for the other. I'm asking us to examine our lives and the systems that we are a part of to see what, what we could lose so that those who are suffering perhaps could gain. I think also sometimes, though, our response, more typically of the Western American church, is like the community that receives Jesus here. The people who had experienced the loss go into town and to tell people what Jesus did and, well, how Jesus had ruined their livelihood and their economic means. And then they come, the people of the community come, 
and see the demon-possessed man changed. Right before them, there was this man who they did not even want to acknowledge because of how much of the other he was. How much of the outsider he was. And now he was in his right mind. And there's a tension here for this people. They see this man change, the transformation, the dramatic transformation. But the people who had experienced the loss, their voices grow louder and louder. They infuriate the other because people could not see beyond their loss. And they just tell Jesus to get out. This is a tension that the breaking of the kingdom of God is constantly experiencing as God moves in. And makes the mountains low and raises the valley up. Those who lived on the mountaintops, sharing now the same economic level as those who were in the valley, get upset. And say, I used to be so much bigger. I used to be so much taller. And their voices would go louder and louder. So much that they get blind to the person in front of them who had healing. Who had been made right. And then they ask God to move on. And Jesus honors this and he moves on. But just as he's about to get back into his boat to continue his boat ministry, Jesus sees the healed man show up. And he asks if he becomes one of his disciples. But Jesus says, no. You go back to that village and you continue to tell them what happened. Proclaim the goodness of who Jesus was because he was once an outsider living among the tombs. And living among those they forgot. And now by the goodness of God, he has been made right. He was whole again. A transformation. And this transformation is a microcosm of the reorientation of the kingdom of God. Those that were living among the dead are made alive again. And even though we may be found among the dead, and we are made alive again in Christ, And even though there are systems out there that will oppress us through Christ, we can experience healing. But we also need to be ready for us as well, who ask uh, sometimes finding ourselves and checking ourselves to make sure we're not asking the goodness of God to move on because of our own personal loss. And sometimes we need to make sure that our voice is not one of the cries that cries out among the scoffers. We need to be able to see how our fear of the other, the different, the hurting, the sick, and those who we pushed in the graveyard of our systems, and how we can offer them healing, even if it causes that a loss to ourselves. We need to be ready for Jesus to call us into the kingdom of God, and how that might change our lives, and how it might benefit the other. So much, so much more of those who are dwelling in the shallow graves so that they can be made alive. We need to be ready for the voices of those who God, uh, for when we hear those voices of God to tell us to move on, to those who do not stand to benefit from the kingdom of God breaking down systems, who will see personal loss larger over a systematic gain, who are wanting to stay in systems of oppression as long as they are not the ones being oppressed. We need to be ready to hear the voices and do as Christ did. Shake the dust and move on. You work hard to change those systems, but at the same time, let the person who has been made free by the voice be the voice that changes the system. Our job is also to amplify the voices of the oppressed, those who have experienced the change 
to be the voice of change. Our job is to help maybe just one change. And as that one continues to voice change, we as a community, as a society, can change more and more. Our job is to keep ourselves, to remind ourselves that we are not working for a kingdom, that we are, sorry, our job is to remind ourselves that we are working for a kingdom that is both here and not yet. We are called to work inside the systems we find ourselves in, to call out injustices when we see it, to lift up the voices of the oppressed, to help set free those who have been put into tombs so that they can be the ones to carry the message of God forward. Yes, there will be people who disagree with us. There are people who don't understand. But our job is to wipe the dust from our feet and keep moving forward. Our job is to always keep pressing on the race towards God and the kingdom that God has called us to work in. Amen.